Yes, uh, I'm not Perry. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Uh, if you are a visitor here, my name is Nate, and uh, we are glad that you are here. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the great privilege of being able to open up God's Word. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm 115 this morning. And uh, if you're not very familiar with the Bible, easy way to find the Psalms is to just open the Bible right in the middle. You're going to hit Psalms somewhere, find Psalm 115, so we're going to be camping out. We've been walking through a sermon series entitled, How People Change, because our heart, our desire is to be transformed in the image of Christ, and so how does that happen? What are the nuts and bolts that causes us to change? Everybody needs to change, and so how does that work? How does that happen? And so the very first week... We looked at 2 Peter, and we saw that God, in God's power, He has given us everything that we need to be able to change. And so there's great hope that change is possible because God has given us everything that we need to be able to change. Week two, we talked about that change happens not through a program, but in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. We talked about being married to Christ and what that looks like. Week three, we talked about the church, and the, the church is like the soil in which we grow. And so if you pull yourself out of the church, you're pulling yourself out of the soil that allows you to grow the best. Then week four, we started dissecting the three-tree diagram. Go ahead and put that up there on the screen. And so uh, last couple of weeks, we've been taking a look at this. In the first week, we took a look at the heat, which is our situation. It's our circumstance. And we learn that those trials in our lives are actually God's grace that he uses to teach us, and it's a catalyst for change. And then last week, we talked about the thorny bush, which is, represents our ungodly responses to the heat or the situation or circumstance. And we learned that our ungodly responses are actually a sign that there's a heart problem inside of us. And so what has to change is not necessarily the situation, but something inside of us needs to change. And that's where we've been going with, with this whole series. We've been leaning towards this, that true and lasting change isn't simply about behavior modification. It's about heart transformation. And so that means, and this is what we're going to dig into today, you're going to see that it's not simply that you have an anger problem. It's that you have a worship problem in your heart. It's not simply that you have an addiction problem. It's that you have a worship problem in your heart. It's not simply that you have a greed issue or a gossip issue or a laziness issue or fill in the blank. It's that you have a worship issue in your heart. That's what's at the core of your problem. And so today we're going to be focusing on the third tree, that, that cross in the middle. And how does the cross help us to reorient our heart's worship away from the idols that we tend to worship and towards Christ and towards God? Today's about recalibrating our hearts, the worship of our heart. And what happens is when we recalibrate the worship of our heart, it changes our whole tree system. It changes our heart which eventually changes the fruit. And so that left side represents a tree that is fruitful. That's our godly responses. And so it's the cross, it's, it's Christ, it's the gospel that changes our hearts so that we will produce a loving response and joy and peace 
and our hearts. And so our text today, this is where the rubber meets the road, really. Okay, everything. If you haven't been here for the last several weeks, I, was, I would highly encourage you, go back and listen. Go to the podcast, go to the website, listen to the, the sermons that have been leading up to this. Everything has been leading up to this. This is, where, this is the pay dirt sermon, okay? And so in Psalm 115, what we're going to see is how foolish idolatry really is and how we can turn from idols towards God. And so I want to pray that God would help us to do that. Would you bow your head one more time? Father, we recognize that heart change is impossible apart from your spirit changing us. It's your power, not ours, that is going to transform our hearts and transform our lives into the image of Christ. And so we plead with you right now that you would help us turn away from the false gods that we tend to worship. And we would turn towards Christ, that we would see the beauty of Christ and be in awe of who you are and what you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this psalm, we don't know who exactly wrote it or when it was written. Scholars think that it was probably written around Ezra, Nehemiah. The Israelites have been in captivity in Babylon for many years, and they have come back, and they're starting to try to build the temple up again. And what they're seeing, though, is they're seeing some opposition from these pagan worshipers. And they've just spent all this time in captivity in Babylon, and they, they've seen the futility of worshiping idols from these pagans. And so in light of that, this psalmist seems to be appalled at these pagan worshipers. And he says this in verse 1. We're going to put this up on the screen too. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give the glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. O oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And so verse 1 sets the tone for the whole psalm. Look at it again. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. This psalm is all about worship. And I want to make it clear. Worship is not simply coming together on a Sunday morning and singing songs. Tim Keller has a great definition of, will, uh, of worship. He says, worship is this. 
It is an act of ascribing ultimate value to something or someone in a way that engages your entire being. And so worship is not simply thinking high thoughts about God. Worship is not simply having warm, fuzzy feelings about Jesus. Worship isn't just simply obeying God. It's all of that put together. Worship is both spirit and in truth, Jesus says. It is both emotion and contemplation. Worship is a holistic act of adoration that engages our whole being, which is why worship both moves our heart and forms the desires in our hearts. It's both responsive and it's transformative. It's a response to beholding beauty and glory, but it also transforms us into the image of which we are beholding. We're going to talk more about that here in a minute. Verse 1 is a reminder that God deserves and desires all of our worship. It's all for his name. Not to us, but to your name give glory. This means God doesn't want want just a piece of the pie. He wants the whole pie. He doesn't just want a piece of your heart. He wants all of your heart. God alone is to be glorified. And notice he says not to us, and he says it twice. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. He's emphasizing our propensity to want to be glory hogs. In a fallen world, we have this desire to take some of God's glory for ourselves. It is so tempting for us to take credit for what God is doing in us and through us. The essence of pride is competing with God for glory. We are constantly tempted to make much of ourselves instead of God. To say, this is my life, I'm going to live it how I want to live it. I want to be my own God. And the rest of this psalm is a poetic plea to give God all the glory. To give God all of our worship. Look at verse 2. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Talking about the Israelites' God. Where's the Israelites' God? He's talking about those pagan worshipers. And he says, our God is in heaven He does all that he pleases. And then the psalmist goes on to contrast the pagan worshipers and those pagan gods to the one true God. And he highlights the foolishness of worshiping these carved images that they had. They had all these carved images that they would bow down and worship to that were made by human hands. He says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They, they have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. Ears, they don't hear. Noses, they don't smell. Hands, they don't feel. Feet, they don't walk. They don't, don't make a sound in their throat. And in other words, they do nothing for you. They have the appearance of being able to do something, but they, at, at the end of the day, they're useless. Which begs the question, why would anybody worship an, a handheld, carved little creature that they made with their hand. This is the picture I always get. I I think of these guys that, anybody collect bobbleheads? Okay, have you ever seen seen a collection of bobbleheads? I've seen these people that have these like collection of bobbleheads and they've got this whole shelf of bobbleheads. And so this is the picture that comes to my mind. You're like putting a few candles around those bobbleheads and bowing down and worshiping. Why would anybody do that? That just seems foolish and silly. But the thing is back then, and still today there are people who, uh, if you walk into like a Hindu temple, you're going to see, it looks like Disneyland with all these little creatures that are made and, you, and, and they bow down and they worship these creatures. Why would they do that? It's because those creatures represent something more 
to them. They represent something more. They represent a a deity that promises some kind of security, some kind of comfort, some kind of pleasure, some kind of power in their lives. So if you're taking notes, this is the reason that they would worship something so foolish. It's because God has hardwired us to worship. At the core of who we are, we are worshipers. God has wired us to worship. Think about the first of the Ten Commandments. God prohibits idolatry. He says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. In fact, Luther says, if you break commandment two through ten, it's because you've already broken commandment number one. God says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. This command, it asserts that we are either going to worship God or we're going to worship something else. There is no third option. There is no option of worshiping nothing. This means the only way that we can eliminate God, which is what our hearts want to do in a fallen world, because we want to be our own gods, the only way we can do that is by creating God substitutes. We need something to worship. We crave that. We need something to capture our hearts and capture our imaginations. We need something to capture our allegiance because that is how we find our value. That is how we find our self-worth. Your identity is wrapped up in whatever captures your heart. And so when I was in high school, basketball captured my heart. I lived for basketball. I would eat, sleep, drink, and play basketball. Once in a while I was study, but only so that I would be qualified to, to play basketball in school, eligible for basketball. I talked like a basketball player, which is like, so you didn't have a whole you didn't need a whole lot of vocabulary to talk like a basketball in high school. So we had this other phrase. That, oh, by the way, sup means what's up. <laughs> okay. But we didn't need to say the whole two words, sup. And then uh, instead of saying all right or okay or I agree with I I, <laughs> so I talked like a basketball player. I, I dressed like a basketball player. My parents could have bought stock and mesh shorts and black, black socks because it was like the 90s and the, the Fab Five were around back then. And so black socks and uh, Jordan t- uh, shoes. My, my heart was captured by basketball. And I, I may not have had some kind of like figurine, but I did have a poster of Michael Jordan in my room, right? <laughs> that I probably bowed down to a little bit if I, if I could have. I, I worshiped basketball because it promised me the potential for popularity and power and a feeling of success. My identity was wrapped up in being a basketball player because that, that's where I found my value. That's where I found, found my self-worth. And over time, basketball changed me because I, I felt like I needed basketball to be happy. I became addicted to it in a sense. I, I loved basketball because I thought it, it helped me maintain control of my life But reality was, basketball was controlling me. I practiced all the time. I dreamt about it. I I had to be, if I wasn't playing it, I was going to be watching it or talking about it. Every part of my life, all of my habits were impacted by basketball. In essence, I became a slave to it. And it transformed me. Look back at verse 8. It says, those who make them, talking about the idols, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You become like whatever or whoever you worship. 
And I never became like Michael Jordan, at least talent-wise. <laughs> but man, I try to emulate him often. When I would practice in my backyard and I would practice my crossover and pretend it was like last second, shot over Elo, good. I must have said that about a million times in high school. I, I would hang my tongue out when I would go up for a, a layup, if I'm honest. <laughs> but uh, I, I tried to be like Mike. Your, your idols have the power to change you. And so let me ask you this. Besides God, what tends to capture your heart? What are you looking to for security, for comfort, for pleasure, for salvation? What, what's your functional savior? What have you set up in your heart as an idol? What do you worship? Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your kids or your grandkids. Maybe it's your spouse or your, your sports, your sports team. Maybe it's your, your stuff or your toys. Maybe it's your looks or exercise or entertainment. What captures your heart? Maybe it's politics or music or education or maybe it's your church. You can Make an idol out of just about anything, and that list could go on and on. But notice that that list, the vast majority of those things are good things. But the problem is when we make them a God thing, when we make them too important in our hearts. And so how do you know what idols are in your hearts? How do you know when you've made a good thing a God thing? Let me give you some diagnostic questions. And part of the hope of this study is that we would become heart doctors for ourselves and for the, the rest of the church, our church family. And so let me ask you some diagnostic questions for your heart as you're trying to discern what idols are in them. And if you're taking notes, these are good, uh, good questions to, to write down. Number one, look at your negative emotions. What causes you great anger? Maybe paralyzing fear. What tends to depress you? What causes you to lose sleep? What do you worry about? What are you anxious about? Often these negative emotions are a window into your heart. And so when a negative emotion bubbles up, ask yourself, okay, where is this coming from? Have I made something too important? Have I believed that something is necessary for my own comfort, my own happiness, my own security, but it really isn't. What am I substituting God for? What, what am I feeling entitled to? That uh, I feel like I've, I've deserved this, but I'm not getting it. And so it's causing some kind of negative emotion. So negative emotions are one. Number two, look at what you comfort or distract yourself with. Uh, maybe it's food or television or social media or some kind of addiction, drugs, alcohol, lusting. Maybe it's shopping. And you need to ask yourself, okay, why, why do I need to be distracted? What am I overwhelmed with? What is it pointing to in my heart? Number three, what do you think about most easily? When your mind is free to be able to think whatever you want to think about, what, what's your default thought? What does your mind tend to go to? That, that's a good window into your heart, what your idol might be. Number four, what do you get the most excited about? 
What's something that you, like, you can't wait to tell somebody else about? Number five, what about you frustrates those who are closest to you? <laughs> Often, uh, it's easy to throw up our defenses when our spouses get upset with us, but maybe God in that moment is trying to teach us that whatever they're frustrated about is really pointing to an idol that's in my, my own heart. See, for you to experience true and lasting change, it requires you to wrestle with what's in your heart, not just your behaviors. You need to learn to identify your specific idols and then dismantle them. And so we're going to be talking about uh, some ways to dismantle those idols. And I, the foundation, you've got to understand, the foundation is always prayer and the Spirit of God. Apart from, the God, from God's Spirit working in us, we can't do this on our own. So I'm going to give you some, uh, some good questions to ask and some, some good thoughts to think through. But ultimately, you need to lean on God to help you change. But dismantling your idols, it starts with you recognizing what they are and how they have impacted your life. You need to wrestle with how your idols have deceived you into thinking that God's promises aren't good enough for you. So what false promises have you believed your idols would give you? How have your idols blinded you from the truth? How have they hid themselves from you? What bad fruit have they created in you? How have they harmed you? How have they harmed the people around you? How have they harmed your relationship with God? How have they stunted your growth in Christ? But wrestle with what specifically your idols are and how they have impacted your life. Number two, to dismantle your idols, it requires you to realize how weak and dangerous they are. That's what the Psalm 115 is about. And maybe this is you just starting by praying and confessing to God, look, I know this is a good thing, God, but I've made it a God thing. I've made it too important to you. I need to confess that and repent from that, turn away from that. And like we see in the psalm, the idols have an appearance of value, but at the end of the day, they're helpless to save us. Instead, what they do is they end up changing us. They enslave us. They deceive us. And ultimately, when we look to other gods, we're committing adultery. We're supposed to be married to Christ, and so when we worship other, other gods than Christ, we're trampling on his love when we worship idols. Number three, dismantling your idols requires you to remember who you are and who God is. That's at the heart of Psalm 115. Three times the psalmist pleads with them to trust in God by reminding them who they are. He says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And he says, O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. He reminds them, look, you are Israel. You are God's chosen people. You are the one that, ones that God brought out of slavery into the promised land. He reminds them then, 
He turns to the house of Aaron. And he says, look, you are the house of Aaron. You are the priests. You are, you've been given the responsibility, the awesome and wonderful responsibility to represent God to the people and people to God. He's reminding them that, look, you are the ones who fear the Lord. You're not like all these other nations. You fear the one true God, the creator and the sustainer of everything. And then three times he pleads with them, trust in the Lord rather than idols. Why? Because it is the Lord who is their help and their shield. In other words, he is their savior, their protector. He is their comfort, their security. Not these idols. These idols, they lie to you. They look like they they can give you something, but they don't. God is where you need to go to find your comfort and your security, your salvation. He is your protector. So these are awesome promises. When you think about it, these are are life-changing promises. If we would grasp this, and this side of the cross, the promises just get better. This side of the cross, you have the ability to find your identity in Christ. And there is great power in finding your, in resting your identity in Christ. Because if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, if you believe that what he did on the cross forgives your sins, that he took your place, that he was a substitute for you on that cross, he took the, the, the wrath of God that you deserved, and you've trusted in him and you lean on him for salvation, that means that Ephesians 2.19 is true for you. You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints in the household of God. It means that you are a saint in God's eyes. It means that 1 John 3, 1 is true for you. See that what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. You're a child of God means that Romans 8, 1 is true of you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is, your guilt is wiped away. Your sin is washed away. There's no condemnation for you. It means that 2 Corinthians 5, 21 is true for you. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Christ's righteousness means Romans 5.10 is true for you. For while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We've been reconciled with God. We're saved by him. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is true for you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're in Christ, you are not the same person you were. Yes, you're still changing, but you are no longer that person. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 is true for you. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us, I love this, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Before you ever even knew him, he looked at you and said, I love you, I want you, I choose you, you are mine, you are my child. The promises this side of the cross are amazing. Rest your identity in the amazing promises of Christ. And then fourthly, to dismantle these idols, you need to live a life of repentance and faith. Repentance and faith, is, it's not a one-time act or event. 
It's a moment-by-moment turning from idols to Christ. Uh, I remember the, the first time that God really started to open up my eyes that basketball had become way too important to me. Uh, it had become an idol. We, so it was, we were newly married. Uh, we were both serving as teachers up in northern Ohio, and I took on a, a coaching position for a middle school basketball team in, in, the, uh, in our district because even though I couldn't play organized basketball myself, I was still finding ways to remember the glory days, right? And I remember going, we went to a, a varsity basketball game. We were just fans there sitting in the crowd, and we're watching uh, our, our team play, the high school team play, and uh, one of the refs makes a, a questionable call. And so what do I do? I stand up and I start yelling at this ref and berating him, embarrassing myself, embarrassing my wife, and Cam doesn't say anything, but I sit back down and I get a loving elbow. <laughs> and that loving elbow was what God used to open up my eyes to see that, all right, you may be looking at basketball as an idol. You might have made basketball a little bit too important in your heart. But I needed that. I needed that loving elbow to, to see that. And so as we conclude, in the book, How People Change, the authors do this. I love these questions. It's a series of questions based on Philippians chapter 2, uh, 1 through 11, that highlight what Christ did for us. And so as God starts to reveal to you uh, the idols in your hearts, these questions can really help you to reorient yourself towards the cross and towards Christ. And so I'm going to use my example of basketball, but feel free to fill in the blank however you see fit with your own idol. So these are great questions to ask yourself. This is a great question. He uses, in, in the book, he uses the example that his idol is comfort, and often when he would come home, to a household full of kids, it would cause some significant tension in their house because he wanted comfort, but he wasn't getting what he wanted because comfort had become an idol to him. And so he would say these questions to himself on the way home, and it transformed his heart because it reoriented his heart back to the cross. And so I'm going to use basketball. Maybe you use comfort or something else. You fill in the blank. So basketball, you look beautiful to me right now. But when did you ever leave your place of prominence and glory to humble yourself for me? Basketball, when did you ever enter my world to suffer on my behalf? Basketball, when did you ever shed your blood on a cross so that I could be cleansed from my sin? Basketball, when were you ever raised from the dead on my behalf? When did you ever promise to give me new life and power? Basketball, when did you ever promise to send the Holy Spirit to me with true comfort that would help me to please God, even when my earthly comfort was threatened? Basketball, when did you ever promise to intercede for me to my Father in heaven so that I could be strong and trial. Basketball, when did you ever promise to come again and redeem me from the things that capture me and make me their slave? If your desire is to see true and lasting change in your life, you need to have a lifestyle where your heart is constantly be, being reoriented 
back towards Christ. It's a moment by moment choosing to rest your identity in Christ and to rejoice in Him and to trust in Him rather than idols. And so let's pray that God would help us with that. Father, again, we recognize that this is impossible apart from your Spirit moving in our hearts, transforming us, giving us a desire to stop worshiping the, the foolish idols of this world and to turn our hearts towards you. And so I plead with you in this moment, first of all, for those who have never turned towards you, that have no relationship with you, I pray that you would open their eyes to see their need for a Savior and they would fully surrender and trust in you and their lives would be forever changed because of that. And I pray for those who have already trusted in you and yet they've been pulled away by idols in this world. I pray that you would help us to repent, that we would turn away from our idols towards you for your glory, not ours, and that it would produce in us a wonderful, beautiful fruit that would reflect your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.